Welcome to the Sega Lounge, a podcast dedicated to our love for all things Sega, be it the games, the music, or the community. I'm KC. In each episode, I'll be talking to different guests and sharing their projects and their passion for Sega. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Sega Lounge. Season 6 of the show starts now, and I'm very grateful that you were able to join me for another year of conversations, challenges, and fun times with Sega fans. If you're new here, I'm Casey, and this podcast is all about Sega and our love for the games, music, and the community surrounding the company. Season 6 also marks a change in how episodes air on Radio Sega as well. Ever since the Sega Lounge became a podcast last season, you'd get two versions of the show. A shorter version, but with music, which aired on Radio Sega, and the full episode, which you'd only get in podcast form. This year, though, I'm happy to say that full episodes of the Sega Lounge will be airing first on Radio Sega every Thursday at 8pm GMT, before they're available everywhere else, including our website, thesegalounge.com, from midnight that same night. That will frankly save me some time in editing and recording intros and outros and hopefully allow me to focus on the meat of the show, which is to get awesome guests to talk to. Now that that's out of the way, welcome and let's talk about this week's show. Twenty twenty was it was something, wasn't it? But for all the bad, really bad things that happened, I'm glad I made the decision to bring back the Sega Lounge for a fifth season. The format changed a bit, but I got the chance to talk to some amazing guests. Game devs, musicians, community personalities, they all made season five a highlight of this show for me. This episode is dedicated to all of them. If you're new to the podcast, Maybe this will whet your appetite and make you want to check out the entire fifth season of the show, or at least stick around for what I've got lined up for season six. I won't have the time today to mention all of my amazing guests, but consider this a brief summary of what happened in the most Sega of all the lounges last year. It's also a glimpse into the minds of some of my guests and what makes them and their projects worth checking out. Let's dive in, shall we? Hosting this podcast allows me to get some quality time with people doing incredible things. Like Fabian of Game Atelier. He was kind enough to come on the show back in 2016, when we were just learning about Monster Boy and the Cursed Kingdom. And to my joy, he was happy to return last year to talk about this amazing game and tell some inside stories of its development. If you haven't yet, please play Monster Boy and the Cursed Kingdom. Here's Fabian talking about the involvement of the original creator of Wonder Boy and Monster World, Nishizawa-san, in Monster Boy. Uh, I think he did uh, many uh, inputs since we sent him uh, several builds, so he can check and see the content and see if everything is compliant with uh, what he had. I also remember, like, I we sent him like some art material for the logo. Uh, the name of the game too. He just gave us some input on, the, on that. That was super interesting to work with him. Uh, and I had the chance to meet Nishizawa-san uh, last uh, summer since uh, we all went together at the DEF CON uh, for having a talk. 
And that was really fun because we, we never met in person before. And I just realized that we worked like uh, we never met in person. So we worked for a long time together, but never met. It was really crazy to, to meet him in person. Like, uh, I can't believe uh, we, we achieved that game and also had a very good communication with him. And I'm so grateful now that uh, we we have a very great product. Monster Boy is like looking the kind of my childhood dream game like. So it's yeah, it was something very strange. And he involved himself uh, at many points since. Uh, thanks to him, we had the opportunity to have the 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 IP, the Wonder Boy IP. We we don't yeah. have the name. We kept Monster Boy uh, to make something clean like. You don't need to know all the monster Wonder Boy before if you if somehow you discover Monster Boy today it's okay. But we have the opportunity to have a good contact with him and Sega and get the uh, the official Wonder Boy uh, like licensing. So every mm-hmm. if you see some super Easter eggs in Monster Boy like uh, the old characters, uh, Pepe logo, this kind of thing, it's thanks yeah. to Shizawa now. Okay, so I, I was actually going to ask you that. Uh, so a mild spoiler alert for people yeah. who haven't played the game. Uh, and if you haven't, why? You you can actually play small bits of some of the old games in, in Monster Boy. How yes. hard was was it to make that happen? So I'm assuming Nishizawa-san had something to do with that, but Sega as well. I think it was a pretty the easy to make this part because the... The old moments that you can play in um, in Monster Boy are kind of uh, uh, it's like it was fun to realize that making some pixel uh, art uh, specifically based on the old games and we also have uh, it's a spoiler alert it's very specific but there is this the sprite of Jin in 16 or 8 bit uh, was very fast to make like it was like a, couple of days and we all we had all its animation because it's super simple compared to what we did for the game so we realized <laughs> the amount of work that is amazingly crazy uh, when you do any 2d asset now in for a game like that uh, it's really at this, this old times it was other technical challenges i'm sure but creating the art assets was pretty super fast uh, and for the getting the ip perspective it's like a, it was kind of natural to put this part in the game and Nishizawa was like yeah cool do that (laughs) so yeah that was a very good move I think to do great stuff all around for most of 2020 the top episode of season 5 in terms of listens was my interview with Ben Ansom of Forever Entertainment that eventually changed but it was still a great episode a conversation about many things including Panzer Dragoon Remake unbeknownst to us The game was about to be released, but everyone still had a lot of questions concerning what it was exactly. A remake? A remaster? And how much input did the original creators of Panzer Dragoon have in this remake? Take a listen to a clip from Ben's interview addressing these questions. Okay, but so it's it's both, in fact, because it's Uh made from scratch. Mm -hmm. Uh, Definitely, we, we developed everything from scratch. Uh, with few materials from Sega, but no code, no extra. Okay. Um, but we are doing it one to one compared to the original one. It means uh, uh, 
you have the same uh, amount of enemies, same gameplay, same content, same levels, everything is, is mm -hmm. in the game, but nothing more, in fact. So we, we didn't uh, add nothing uh, um, new in the game except some options, etc., but no, no new content. Okay, okay, excellent. Uh, are you going with the same style as the original when it comes, for example, to art direction, or are you doing something completely different? Obviously, the graphics are upgraded for uh, newer consoles. Yeah, of course. Uh, no, no, we, we try to we try to stay very fair to the original game. Um, mm -hmm. But of of course, we have to take some decisions. Uh, we had to take some decisions during the development, uh, and um, uh, our goal is to stay true to the to the original. And also, the, we are not. Alone deciding what can what, or has to be changed. Uh, we are working, of course, with Sega, and um, we also um, spoke with the former team. So they gave us their opinion about the art direction, etc. Et so we, we want to ensure that we are very close to the or in respectful to the original one. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course, we had to make some decisions because you you had extremely big technical limitations back then that we don't have today anymore, of course. Yeah. Um, so we ha we have to improve the, the the graphics a lot and and invent some part of the design. Okay, okay, makes sense. Uh, so you you mentioned Sega, you mentioned the original team, so uh, Team Andromeda, right? Mm -hmm. um, what sort of input did, for example, let, let's take this in parts. So what sort of input do you have? In the development process, you as a producer. Um, I, not, <laughs> not, I mean, not a lot because we, I'm uh, surrounded by extremist talented uh, people. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we have an art di director. Is uh, working with the former art director from Andromeda team, so I think he's very well. Uh, oh, awesome! Uh, in good hands. Yeah. Um, no, no. My my inputs are more like uh, uh, I'm playing the the game a lot, uh, helping when I find something I don't like. I I say it, but it doesn't mean they will change it. Um, no, it's 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 really uh, a team job, you know. It's in uh, not even an internal team job, but we we speak a lot, a lot, a lot with Sega. They have a lot of very interesting feedback. Um, uh, we speak a lot with the uh, former team. Uh, we also speak a lot with the community. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, it's 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 teamwork, and it's not, it's not like I have to I say oh, I don't like this color, change it. No, it's not like this at all. <laughs> okay, makes sense, makes sense. But th there are a lot of people involved, right? So even mm -hmm. uh, do you have to run every decision by Sega, or do they? Oh, um, th that's clear. That at, at the end, Sega is the IP owner, so it's uh, mm -hmm. their uh, game, their IP. So yes, of course, every decision is validated by Sega, but. In the same time, they are really trustful. Uh, they, we are working in very, very good conditions with them. So it's uh, not like we have to change a lot of things. It's more like, uh, for example, I remember at the beginning of the development, we had some feedback about the, uh, some um, enemies. And uh, that, was, that was, we, we made some mistakes. Enemies were exploding. Uh, but Sega said, no, you know, the, 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 the enemies are made with such a, uh, um, material 
that cannot explode. So you don't have to put explosion here. You have to either have to fall in the in the water yeah. or something like this. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if I'm clear, but you, it's exactly yeah. just the kind of um, of feedback we need because we don't know the game as much as Sega knows, of course. It wasn't all Sega talk last season on the Sega Lounge. We also got some insight into the music business from a pro, the amazing and always charming Johnny Gioelli, one half of Crush 40. In this candid interview, Johnny talked about his past as a rock star and the break that he needed after his band Hardline lost their record deal. Uh, it was a timing issue. Uh, you know, we had a very, uh, a very successful album with Double Eclipse, and mm -hmm. it, we sold lots and lots of records. And um, it's today still known as a very, you know, a classic yeah. uh, melodic rock record. But at that time, we were just a little bit too late timing. Um, if that would have come out in the late '80s, it probably been a you know, multi, multi, multi platinum album, I would think. Um, but grunge music entered in the early 90s, bands mm -hmm. like, you know, Soundgarden and Pearl Jam. And it, MTV stopped playing music videos. I mean, that's what it was all about at the time. It started doing these reality shows and things. And, <laughs> and so the market itself uh, dried up. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget, there's a very uh, famous uh, man in the business, not a musician, and uh, I, I won't mention his name, but he he was responsible for bands like Guns N' Roses and you know big big Metallica and groups like that. And he he told me he said MTV is not going to play videos anymore. And I said, what are you talking about? And he goes, no, it's over, man. He goes, you guys made a beautiful record, but it's over. And we were like, yeah, right. What are you kidding me? And he was right. It was over. Um, grunge came in and literally just wiped us out. And um, we had a meeting. We were going to do another record. And we had a meeting at the record company. And uh, the record company wanted to make us sound like a grunge band. And we said, absolutely not. That's not who we are. And when we said no, deal was over. So one day you've got eight and a half million dollars and the next day you've got nothing. And that's the business. Yeah. But, you know, I could have certainly said, hey, yeah, sure, I'll conform. I'll, I'll try to sound like a grunge guy. You know, but for me, um, it wasn't me and I didn't want to do it. So um, bye bye went the deal. And then, you know, when you lose a big deal like that, it's everything I worked for to, to you know, you need some time, you need a little therapy. And so, and I, I didn't need like real therapy, but I need time away from the business to try to figure out, you know, what I was going to do. And how, um, how do you cope with that? With, with that feeling, with maybe even well, overwhelming feeling of, of, you know, it's things like, being uh, gone like yeah, that. it's just like, it's just like we, how we all deal with things like, you know, loss, and, you know, death and divorce and, all that stuff. We all deal with it, you know, different ways, but certainly I went through different stages. You know, my first fear again was not the money. My first fear was, am I not going to hear that crowd sound anymore? Am I not going to be in a magazine again? And you know what I mean? Because those were to, to see yourself in the magazines, like, wow, it's, it validates, wow, I'm worthy. I did it. I got to this place. Um, um, it's very hard. There's there's a tremendous amount of talent out there that never, ever gets heard. You know, even with this thing we call the internet and this, this social networking and all this, these ways for, for new artists to be heard 
um, it's still very, very difficult. It's like winning the lottery, you know? So it's, it's probably harder now, right? It's there are harder. so many people. Sure. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Back in the day, you know, when you submitted your music to a record company, um, there was a process to do it. And you had to have a lawyer. It's called non-solicited, you know, so you couldn't just send them a tape, a tape. I just dated myself a tape. <laughs> so you couldn't just send them music. There you go. You had to present it through a lawyer. Today, forget it. You know, you put it up on Instagram, you Snapchat, you do this, you whatever. <laughs> I don't even know all the stuff now. And so it's a different world. But as far as that loss, I went through the stages, the anger, the depression, the fear that, that we all go through. Uh, because I, at that point in my life, and I have everything I've worked for since I was eight years old, and it's stripped from you, you need some time to figure out, how do I start again? Really, what do I do? How do I even start this again? So for me, it was just taking time away from, from everything and just thinking. And I took quite a few years to do just that. While this episode won't focus much on the Sega Lounge challenges, I thought it'd be a shame not to highlight a brand new edition of G.O.L.E.'s Roulette of Rock, which saw Johnny turning children's rhymes into rock anthems. Take a listen. So the first one has to be Row, Row, Row Your Boat. We all know that one, right? Uh-huh. So if I were to rock this one out, should I do it? Sure. Go for it. Okay. This one's easy. This one should be like this. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. That's the way I would do that one. What do That's you think? Amazing. That's amazing. Okay, next one. <laughs> um, let's see. <laughs> I'm a little teapot. No, I can't do that one, but I can do <laughs> Ba Ba Black Sheep. That would go like this. Ba Ba Black Sheep. Have you any wool? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Three bags full. One for the master, one for the dame, one for the little boy who lives down the lane. Just like that. That was amazing. That 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 is actually a rock anthem right there. Very good. Thank you. That's funny, man. Amazing, amazing. Um, Thank you, bro. In many ways, the most special interview I ever did on this show was with Mineko Okamura, Takumi Oshinaga, and Takaku Sakuma. Not only was it a video chat through Zoom, but it was also the first time we ever had Japanese devs on the show and people that worked on one of my favorite Dreamcast series, Space Channel 5. Here's Mineko Okamura, assistant producer of the first two games, and Takumi Yoshinaga of Sega of Japan, story and game design director in the original games, sharing some interesting facts related to the development process of Space Channel 5. So, so one of the memorable things that he had still from the original Space Channel 5, so since like Ulala herself going to be dancing in the game, right? So we need to capture the movement or the motion somehow. And all those days, back in like more than 20 years ago, so everything connected with a cable, not like Wi-Fi or Bluetooth. So, 
So every time they're working for the motion capture, so there is a person holding more than 20 cables physically. At the same time, there is a person working with a 20 cables. So that is that thing is really interesting to us, not what he said. <laughs> I can imagine that. <laughs> yes. So very different days, right? <laughs> yeah, 20 okay. years. 20 years of the time yeah. is very interesting. It's like a flash at the same time as everything changed. Now, everything wireless, things change at the same time, things make easier at the same time. Back in 20 years ago, this is interesting memories, right? Someone yeah. always do some extra work. That and, it's, makes and it's weird to think that 20 years have passed. Right. It seems mm. like it was yesterday. <laughs> yes, so maybe the people who have a really hardcore gamer for the special five, they just realize, oh my God, like but 20 years, it really passed, but it is. But so that's yes. why, like, I came back with a VR. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, very good. How did you end up deciding to use the theme of a news report show in space for the game? Because that's not. Uh, you know, we think about a, a rhythm game, a music-based game, mm -hmm. dancing. Uh, maybe the first thing that you think about is not a news reporter in space, but that was the idea. How did that happen? So, so, did <laughs> you know what? So since you asked him for that kind of question, is like make him think about how come, how could I ending up? For the like the dancing rhythm game and then actually well reporting whatever happening over there. So if you ask me the question now, I believe first of all he wants to make some game with a reporting show. At the same time, he wants to make the game was based on the musical. So the musical itself is on the stage. You know yourself gonna be singing whatever you're feeling whatever you're experiencing whatever the emotion you're having inside you by singing right so that's why he wants to combine those factor of musical or recording show so that is a kind of like a beginning point if you ask that kind of question because first of all he said i don't know <laughs> but if you since you ask me those kind of question if i need to think about it where i started for this idea that is the reason back in april the long-awaited streets of rich 4 was finally released not only was i able to review the game ahead of its release but i also managed to interview Cyril imbert from dot amu executive producer and ben fiquet from lizard cube art director it was a very fun chat with an interesting challenge to boot here are Cyril and Ben explaining how Streets of Rich 4 came to fruition. As I, as I mentioned, uh, we finished Wonder Boy in 2017, and uh, I started thinking about uh, a new project I, we could do at uh, uh, Lizard Cube, and I started drawing uh, just for me and uh, not really sharing it. And at some point, uh, I think that was at the launch of uh, Wonder Boy 3. Yeah, uh, launch party. Yeah, the launch party. Uh, uh, we, we discussed over beer uh, with Siri of uh, what could be next. And uh, we, had, we realized we had the same idea. 
which was a switch of H4. And we were like, yes, that would be amazing. And, uh, and so I showed him my drawings. And uh, from there, we, uh, we made a full, fully proper pitch. <laughs> yes, fully fledged pitch that we, uh, Siri went to Sega with. And, uh, and after that, we had to wait, to wait and to wait for, for the approval, which uh, ultimately came. And, uh, and yeah, that's, that's it, basically. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's it. That's the story. Basically, uh, it was really like uh, something um, we both wanted to do for a long time. But for me, it was a really long shot because, contrary to Wonder Boy, it's very big license. Even if we were specialized in bringing back license at Dota New, it was not an easy, you know, uh, target. Uh, but when I when Ben showed me his drawings, I was like, "We need to try this, you know. Like, uh, it, it must be, you know, like uh, tried at some point." So, yeah. And uh, when I went to Tokyo and showed uh, the pitch to, to Sega, uh, surprisingly, they they were very welcoming and very interested in the project. Um, and from that moment, I knew that there was a possibility. And from then we we did everything we could to make it happen, and a couple of months and later think, it was a thing. I think the experience of uh, Wonder Boy proved to Sega that we were not uh, messing around with uh, the license. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, uh, they were very happy with the result of Wonder Boy, and uh, and this is like a very huge step uh, for a Japanese uh, businessmen. Uh, they need to trust you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so basically, Wonder Boy was the first uh, step in the process of uh, having Streets of Rage 4 becoming a reality, really. Yeah. yeah, especially considering that there had been other pitches in the past that Sega did not mm-hmm. approve. So, uh, yeah, yeah it, it, it's really important to trust uh, a developer. It came at different times uh, yeah. of Sega, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, it's it might change... I think we had a, uh, for Switch of H4 we we had a very good window of of opportunity. Yes. But if we like pitch it a uh, few years back or in a, in a few years, maybe the situation would have been different at Sega. They would have said no. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is quite uh, we are, we've been quite lucky to. Uh, yeah. I think uh, I think the fact that Sonic Mania did so well really helped as well yeah you know because it was not done by sega internally it was not done by a like very famous studio or it was done by just a fan you know uh, fans basically and um and so i think that it opened uh some doors uh thanks to sonic mania as well and of course wonder boy as ben said really contributed to that as well certainly one of my games of 2020 It's always a pleasure to talk to people tied to moments in Sega history that I experienced personally and that were important to me as a child. Case in point, legendary composer Howard Drossin. He was an amazing guest and what started as a planned one hour long interview turned into over three hours of conversation that I had to split into two episodes of the show. And not everything made it into those two episodes too. Howard was kind enough to share his time and some stories behind the scenes. For example, how he went from being a part of a band to going to work at Sega. We did two albums, 
couple of music videos, a lot of touring, played some really big concerts. Um, you know, I got to live that lifestyle. And uh, I'm not sure I got onto the film game music thing, which I thought your listeners might be interested in, but people might be interested mm-hmm. in this too. You know, this is really part of my background that kind of summates who I am and, and how I do stuff uh, is, you know, playing in a playing in a live band and recording. And that's really where I learned how to work in the studio. Uh, I had my own MIDI studio, but it really wasn't a studio studio, you know. Um, so that's where I worked in my first professional studios, playing in bands. And I would ask engineers what they were doing. I was curious about how things worked and what a patch bay was. <laughs> um, and uh, that's really how it all started for me. And I think that playing in a band gave me that because I was always kind of a shy kid, but playing in bands really helped me come out of my shell a little bit. And, uh, you know, so so that 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 all ended, you know, when I was around 27 years old and our record company, our second album didn't do so well. So our record company dropped us. And uh, it was around that time that I made this demo that went to Walt Disney Software and got my first job and it was shortly after that that i got a call from the vp up at sega who pretty much hired me over the phone okay (laughs) um which was one of the which was such a lucky break his name is roger hector and to this day i'm grateful to him uh he's a great guy now he actually used to be the vp of walt disney software Mm -hmm. and um, one of the guys at Walt Disney Software was going up to work at Sega and took some of my demos up with him. And it just so happened they were looking for a music director up there. And I asked him if he would give my demos to the powers that be. And he did. And Roger gave me a call and hired me. And that's that's really where my whole time at Sega started. He also talked about Sonic Spinball and overcoming the hardware limitations of retro systems. Yeah, Sonic Spinball was the first yeah. game I did uh, mm-hmm. that I worked on. Uh, there were a number of composers that worked on that game. So uh, Sonic Spinball was the first game that uh, that I worked on there. And actually, the first day that I started. <laughs> oh. <laughs> first day. Welcome. Uh, Here's the project the, the, to work on. Exactly. Well, the, the first day that I started, that they were in the throes of like the final days of finishing that game, but they were short on music. Some guys over at another division of Sega, there were three or four guys that had contributed some tracks, but they were still missing some tracks for that game. So um, I kind of jumped in and, and uh, the first day and, and did a track. And I think the next few days after that, I, I did a few other tracks and then they released the game. It was like, wow, I was fast. I didn't get really a chance to even get my bearings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it was cool. How did you deal with the limitations of the hardware? Did you... Uh, s- some people say, I, I actually say that because I, I like listening to video game music from back in the day. Um, yeah. And, and most of our listeners uh, also like to, to listen to those uh, old tracks. Yes. Uh, there were limitations, right? But I think composers... Um, as I say, limitations 
spark creativity. So absolutely, you guys absolutely. had to be very creative to make some things work on the hardware that you had to work on. Right? Do you know what? I learned so much working within those limitations and mm -hmm. having them, and it was such a good thing for me, uh, growth-wise as a composer. Because when you have so little to work with, it forces you to really focus on what you're doing, what each voice is doing, how important it becomes. That wasn't my approach before, because my approach was, oh, I can add any instrument I want, put a bunch of bullshit in and flourishes and stuff like this. Can't do that in this environment. Every yeah. note has to count. Uh, so it did so much for me uh, at, uh, in terms of growing as a musician and a writer. And uh, it's something that to this day, I'll force myself into a box a little bit, whether consciously or because of budget. I've done a couple of things uh, for Spike Lee. And he's called me and he said, listen, I only want a clarinet and a piano. And that's it. <laughs> uh, and on one cue, he said he just wanted the clarinet. <laughs> it was a really deep scene and I he said I only want the clarinet on this scene so those kinds of things force you to write in ways that you never would have written before and I think it's I, I, I think it's something that every composer should do when you're forced into a situation and my time at Sega I really grew by the time the last game that I did there for the Genesis was a game called The Ooze Mm -hmm. And it, by that point, I I loved the Genesis, absolutely loved it. I'd worked with it for a while. I'd learned how to deal with its constraints. I felt like I really pushed it to the limit on some things, and I loved it. I just absolutely loved it. I I wish I had the whole setup even to this day, <laughs> sitting in my <laughs> studio, just because. It, it forced me to write things in such a way that I, I just never would have done before. And it was really rewarding. Finally, Howard discussed being involved in a quite different Sonic project, Virtual Sonic. Well, it was vastly different in that uh, uh, it was full bandwidth. You know, I, I, didn't, I didn't do any of it on the Genesis. I was just told that I could make an album um, and I could do whatever I wanted. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I was told that it was for some uh be, and i'd been there uh it was at the luxor hotel the luxor hotel in the center of it like in the middle of the casino there was like i don't know it looked like a volcano to me but maybe it was like a pyramid or a mountain and inside of that was this kind of sega uh arcade or something sega had a, a footprint there so they wanted to i was told they wanted to release like an album that maybe would play in there and it would just be like music from the worlds of Sonic or something like that. And I was told, well, you know, are there specific things you want me to do? I wasn't given any direction whatsoever, basically, except, you know, music <laughs> from the worlds of Sonic, do whatever the hell you want. <laughs> so it was, I would say totally self-indulgent, indulgent. I, I was just doing whatever, you know, um, it, the album, Certainly, looking back on it, didn't have a focus to it. It was like a million different styles, um, you know, uh, <laughs> like from one track to the next. 
<laughs> you know, I, I took a couple of the themes that I did and, and, you know, reimagined them into longer tracks that develop. I think one, one of them was from, well, actually, no, not one of them. Both of them were from Spinball, and then one of them was a Sonic and Knuckles theme. Mm-hmm. And uh, kind of turned them into, you know, full bandwidth of the day, you know, what we had with orchestra and my guitar, and that was it. And um, the rest was just about just shit that I made up, you know. I was like, oh, this is, I'll put this on. We don't get many book authors on this show, but I'd certainly like to see that change. Sometime before I started working on The Return of the Sega Lounge last year, I came across a series of books titled The Minds Behind the Games, written by Patrick Hickey Jr. I immediately added him to my list of potential guests. Funnily enough, Patrick himself reached out to me and asked if I'd want to interview him to promote his works before I even got around to contact him. The rest is history. It was truly a pleasure to learn more about a very driven man who wanted to leave a legacy for his children and for everyone wanting to learn more about the creators of their favorite video games. His is a very inspirational story, I think. Here is Patrick sharing how getting a no can lead you to create something meaningful. So, so basically what happened was I kind of alluded to it before. It's like my, uh, my wife was like five months pregnant and um, I wanted to do something like that I was super proud of um, to kind of like have something like a legacy, you know, and um, I had been teaching for about 10 years at that point. And originally my goal was I, I wanted to create a multimedia journalism program for the college that I worked at. I had taught it at a couple of other colleges and I wanted to bring it to the college that, you know, I, I work at full time, you know, and um, my supervisor was basically like, no. and um, I was kind of pissed and it was kind of like, I looked at this person kind of almost like, you know, a mentor. And I just saw that he had his tenure and he was just going to kind of ride out the rest of his career. Like he didn't want to do anything extra and he was just going to slide by. And I mean, I was 34 at the time. So I'm, I was kind of like hungry and I still am, you know, hungry to do stuff and uh, to make a mark, you know, to leave an impression on people and not to just kind of coast by like, like a fart in the wind, you know? And, um, <laughs> So I was like, my, as, as soon as he said no, my first impulse was kind of like, well, then I'm going to go write a book. So his answer was, then go write a book. So I went home and I was just sitting in my man cave where like all my, all my games are and stuff. And I'm just like, what am I going to write about? I'm like, cause I'm doing this. I'm totally doing this. And I'm just sitting like on the floor in my man cave and I'm surrounded by games. I just started pulling games out like Wonder Boy and Monster World and NBA Jam and Toe Jam and Earl and King's Bounty and Mutant League Football. And I'm just like, I know who created these games, but a lot of people don't. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that there are great stories behind these games. And I'm just like, why don't I try and contact some of these guys? Some of them I knew already. Some of them I didn't. So I'm like, let me go hunting. And what I did was I got like six developers uh, and I emailed them and I'm like, if three of them answer me, I think that'll be enough to like start a book, like have something to pitch to a publisher within a week, all six got back to me. So this was like on Halloween of 2016. I'm just like, yeah, this is what I want to do. So a week later, um, all six got back to me. And then by Thanksgiving, I had a book deal. So 
I just after that, after I got the first six, then I, I just said, all right, what are some games that I know have affected me that have affected other people? Games that have interesting stories or games that like deserve people deserve to know more about, you know, games like Night Trap, you know, that like are just like mm-hmm. laced in infamy, but like nobody really knows like the true stories behind them, you know? So video games are probably away from my wife, my daughter and my son, my my favorite thing in like the entire world. And in terms of writing, my favorite things to write are interviews. I love to sit down with people and just listen and have them tell me a story. So I was just like, you know what? This book is going to read well if I combine those two things. So I'm like, I'm going to, I said it early on. I'm like, I'm going to have like an interview anthology. So that's basically like each chapter reads like completely independent of everything else. So it's yeah. like, if you pick up the book and you're like, you know what? I really want to know about Night Trap. And you just want to read the Night Trap chapter? You absolutely can. I had somebody message me on Twitter like two days ago, and they showed me that they had bought a copy of the book. And um, they're like, oh, I only read the Mortal Kombat chapter, but I loved it. And I'm just like, you know, there's like 35 other games in the book. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I know. I'm going to get around to it. He goes, but I love And this guy is like a hardcore like Mortal Kombat fan. Like he's he's got uh an instagram account with like thirty eight thousand followers he every day is like mortal Kombat on his page so it's like for me for him to buy my book was huge but you know it's also like a book that i think people that really love video games and love how diverse and eclectic the industry can be will really enjoy it because for me the first book is kind of like a front of uh like a front row ticket to my childhood it's like all these games that affected me as a kid and affected other people too so Mm -hmm. That's kind of how it all started. Just me combining two things that I loved, like journalism, like real journalism and uh, and video games. Hopefully we can get Patrick Hickey Jr. back on the show to talk about his upcoming The Minds Behind the Genesis Games. Season 5 of the Sega Lounge also allowed me to get to know some other members of the community a bit better and to let you guys get to know them as well. The Saturn Junkyard is a blog I was not very familiar with but I ended up listening to some episodes of their Titancast, and I decided to invite Brian and Simon over to the lounge for a chat. This was a very insightful conversation. Here I am learning how the Saturn Junkyard went from being a spin-off blog of the Dreamcast Junkyard to what it is now, a multimedia empire. Okay, so uh, uh, you, Casey, have you had some uh, contact with the guys from the Dreamcast Junkyard? I have, yes. Okay, so so... Back when Tom started that in, I think it was 2005, um, he very kindly allowed me to to write some articles on his blog and uh, allowed me to be a part of the Dreamcast Junkyard team, which I was for, I would think, three or four years. Uh, And then at the same time, uh, he also encouraged me to start my own blog and, and I you know, had a very limited creative uh, scope. So I just thought, right, I know what I'll do. I'll do a satin junkyard, the same as Tom's Dreamcast junkyard. And it literally went like that. He was kind enough to take me on board. He was very generous in terms of letting me take on the junkyard name. Um, and he was he's just being, all, you know, totally supportive. We did a, a joint podcast um, last week. Uh, so we still have an ongoing uh, friendship as well which is nice so yeah straight through the dreamcast junkyard is where the saturn junkyard came and it was a 
a, a written only blog for many years um and there were many years where there wasn't many articles put on it but it's been around since 2006 um and it's still going now we get the odd articles still up there uh, every month or so uh, and then there's also now a facebook community um and the titan cast which is our podcast and we have a youtube channel so it's grown it's grown completely and brian has uh, a lot to do with all of the the growth and the development so i shall hand over to him at this point and let him tell you how we've moved from being just a, a blog to being uh, a bit of a multimedia empire <laughs> <laughs> um yeah and, and not and you know of course we still are a blog i think first and foremost that's um you know, a big part of how we express our enthusiasm for the, the Saturn today. But um, yeah, along those lines, we also um, had a number of people join. And so I guess I should t uh, take a step back and say that um, at a certain point, and I would shout out John Lee here. Um, and, and I think he bugged you, Simon, right? This was a couple of years ago at 2017 or so um, to, to uh, kick things off with like a, a Facebook community, right? Correct. And um, at the time, I had just joined the Dreamcast Junkyard, and I think John had come over and advertised that, hey, we're starting up the Saturn Junkyard Facebook group. You should join us if, you, if you're if you into the Saturn. And, and I, I kind of jumped at that, um, along with a few other people, um, Sam uh, as well. I think you know him as uh, the Sega Southern Gentleman, or Southern Sega Gentleman. Oh, God, he's going to kill me if I... <laughs> Southern Sega gentleman SSG, um, and so he, you know he has his own YouTube channel now. But um, yeah, I think both of us got together and we're like, well, what else can we do to contribute um, to this? And and we had gotten in touch with Simon, and he was you were nice enough, Simon, to uh, basically just give us the reins to say, oh, you guys want to do a podcast? Sure, let's let's do a podcast, and um, that's really how it got started. And, and then Nuno, um, who had also contributed on the blog several years back or prior um he was interested as well so the four of us kind of got together and decided to start recording um at least as often as we could which ended up not being terribly often and, and that kind of fluctuates and we can probably talk about that later um but yeah it's been a fun little project and, and in addition to that there's the youtube channel um that nuno spearheads um and he puts out some really really nice uh, content, particularly surrounding some of the uh, technical comparisons and emulation, strides in emulation and fan translation projects and other things that come out. Also, um, just, you know, prototype games um, he'll show off. I love sharing new projects this amazing community creates. That's why I tend to get quite a few creators of Kickstarter projects on the show. One of them last year was Andrew Dickinson. But don't think for a second he's a newcomer to the Sega fan scene. On the contrary, not only is he the host of the Dreamcast Years podcast, but by the time he came on the lounge, he already had a successful Kickstarter and book under his belt. So it was only logical for Andrew to kickstart the second book in the series, Dreamcast Year 2. However, how did it all start and how did he become an author? It's an interesting story, actually. There was one particular Kickstarter project that I backed called um, PlayStation Vita Year One, mm -hmm. which is by a gentleman called Sandy Bry. And he um, he was writing uh, about his favorite console, which is the PlayStation Vita. He's, 
you know, he's a dad and just like me, you know, he loved games when he was a kid and he continued to play them. But when he had children, he found it very difficult then to actually play games sat in front of the TV because it's just, you know, the kids wanted to watch cartoons and, <laughs> you know, he's busy and he's got loads of things to do. And he found that the PlayStation Vita, when he picked one of those up, you know, he could play that on the way to work. He could play in bed before he went to bed. You know, he could just kind of steal moments of time to play games that he really loved, even with all the stuff that was happening in his life. Um, I don't have kids, but, you know, I enjoyed the Vita anyway. I think it's a great console. And so I, I backed the book. Um, and the whole concept of that book was to kind of look at the first year and, um, you know, how it, how it came to be, how Sony created it, what... Um, you know how it was marketed how it launched and how well how well it did with retrospectives on the games that launched and all that kind of stuff so i backed that and uh you know i was very excited for it and eventually my copy arrived and i was kind of looking through it and i was you know i was thinking to myself the whole time i was reading it that this you know they're not the same console they're not exactly the same in terms of their story but their the vita and the dreamcast are very similar in the fact that they were underdogs almost um mm -hmm. and well dreamcast definitely was an underdog and it was <laughs> um it, but you know they perhaps were finished too soon and um you know other consoles uh were kind of you know beating them in terms of you know for the the vita it was the the 3ds the 3ds kind of you know nintendo has the stranglehold on the handheld market and for the dreamcast it was the ps2 so i i figured hey you know this seems like a great format to tell the story of the Dreamcast. Um, it's not something that's been done before <clears throat> in that particular format. And also I, I wanted to tell the story from a European perspective rather than the kind of the American and the Japanese perspective that you would generally see when you read up about the Dreamcast. Um, so I approached Sandeep and I said, I really like the book and I really want to write a version of it, but about the Dreamcast. And he was like, sure that's fine. Yeah, go for it. That'd be great. <laughs> so um, he just kind of became for the first book, he became a bit of a mentor and, um, you know, helped me in the initial stages to get things started and, you know, gave me feedback and advice. Um, and yeah, that's kind of how it got started. I just decided, hey, I'm going to do this. And, and, and it came at a point in, in time for my life as well, where I was struggling personally with things like depression and, uh, and anxiety and, and just a, kind of a, a purpose um for my life you know I'd, I'd got to a point where you know i have a partner we have a house together i've got a job um and that's all great but what you know what do i want to do what, what's my life about is, is my life literally just about going to work making money paying bills um yeah. and that and that kind of felt like oh i don't i don't like that but it's it's necessary it's a necessary evil to live in the world we do so i was like okay well i've got to work i can't like leave my job and 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 you know pursue a, a crazy a crazy dream of writing um so i'll do it in this way i will you know i will use kickstarter which i'd found was a great tool for people to create things and i'll use this format that, that sandeep created to uh tell a story in it's fairly you know it's fairly short form the first book is a hundred and it was 112 pages i think it ended up being 118 pages um so or was it 112? I can't even remember how many pages my own book was, but it was, it was about 112 pages. But yeah, so it's a short book. So it's it's not like it would eat into my life significantly mm. enough that I wouldn't have to work. So it all just kind of came about. And I was like, right, I'm going to kind of get myself out of this hole that I found myself in by doing something that I'm passionate about, you know, writing about the Dreamcast, which I've always been passionate about um, and sharing that with other people. So that's really how the first book came about. It was it was about you know, me trying to get out of a bit of a dark place in my life and share my passion for the Dreamcast with other people.
For some reason, I spent years collaborating with my next highlighted guest on various Radio Sega projects, but never really sat down with the man to discuss his website. Lewis Clark, aka Sonic Yoda, was a delight to talk to, and I really enjoyed learning more about how he got into games, and even finding out that we got the same Mega Drive bundle at around the same time. Here's Lewis telling us about what sort of content you can find on SegaDriven.com. Yeah, so it's a bit of a, a melding between an old-school fan site with information and resources, but also the sort of modern blog-style news format. So we do have the news. Um, you'll see, you know, key um, Sega news and things like that. So um, your, your regular game announcements and reveals and things like that will hit the front page and we'll, we'll try and keep people up to date as to how development is going with certain um, um, releases and that are coming coming up uh, so yeah lots of new stuff we also try and report on what's going on in homebrew scenes and you know because um, the dreamcast is obviously very active so it's nice to see every now and again you get a new dreamcast release that you can talk about and yeah it's we just try and keep the the sega news nice and varied and interesting but um the bit the side of the website that i'm still very much enjoy running is the sort of information and resources so there's a a huge um, information database on Sega hardware and peripherals and I try to write a feature and take photographs of everything that I can and if I can't source the system myself then I'll try and ask you know friends that have one and so that we actually have high quality images of a direct system and I'm not just taking things from another website because mm -hmm. I you know I've definitely moved away from that <laughs> leaning <laughs> from my youth um there's a huge sort of merchandise catalogue as well. I'm trying to catalogue as many books and mu and c music releases and um, magazines and things. Um, mm -hmm. And it's very much just sort of me trying to archive what I own, but at the same time, it's I try and widen it a little bit. And if if friends have things that they can that they're they're willing to to scan or photograph and things like that, then I'm happy to include them. But um, I think the problem with those things is that if you if you if you chuck your net too wide and try and catalog every single piece of merchandise i mean sonic alone is just going to be impossible right <laughs> yeah. so um that's why i always try and focus on the things that that come through my own collection so that it's it's nice and easy to for me to to photograph it in the way i like and write the piece on it the way that i want it to be and yeah so it's it's not yeah. extensive but i try and make it as extensive as i can because you know like anybody that's into sega and stuff like that you you do have a collector's mindset i think um maybe not so so I'm I'm not so wild that I feel like I need everything, but I, there's certain things that I definitely want to to be able to catalogue and you know share with people to say that, so that they can discover them for themselves. Um, I'm the thing I'm really proud of in particular is the the book section of the merchandise catalogue um, mm -hmm. because I don't think it's something that's widely sort of archived anywhere. There's lots and lots of books and cover mount books that came with magazines and things like that that are ju they're just not sort of archived anywhere. So it's 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 really nice to to try and get as much of that on online as possible, including you know ISB, ISBN numbers, so people can look these things up and potentially buy them if they want to to, to own a copy and things. Um, so that's been really fun. Um, that and the thing I'm currently working on at the moment as well is home video releases because again that's another side of Sega you don't really see yeah. spoken about an awful lot. And there's some interesting stuff out there. As obviously the, there's the Bayonetta animated film. We've obviously got the Sonic movie that came out earlier this year and things, things like that. There's the weird Uwe Boll like House of the Dead films, <laughs> and things yes. like that. So, so there's some really strange, interesting items there that I think that are 
largely ignored and I just I find them kind of fascinating so it's just mm-hmm. it's just nice to be able to to go through them and watch but also at the same time you know share your opinions and uh, let other let other people know that if they're interested in that side of things then there is options available to you it's not as extensive as say you know music releases or book releases or magazines but there are some interesting little things i mean as of recently i i found there's a football manager documentary film um and logged that on the website and that's a really interesting watch uh, such a strange side of things that you wouldn't have thought would make a good documentary film but it's a perfectly watchable thing let's talk about twitch for a bit i was never too much into the whole watching people play video games thing However, last year, I found myself enjoying certain channels and certain streamers. One particular streamer I really enjoyed watching was the lovely Marta Camilo, who I came to know from Sega of Europe's streams and her own channel. Her personality and fun streams really got me hooked, and at some point during the show's summer break, I knew I had to have her on the podcast for a chat. Did I mention she is also from Portugal? Here is Marta discussing how she ended up working in the video game industry and what exactly she does. Yeah, I I like to call it a happy accident. Um, I growing up, I never I never thought video games were even an option. Um, I, I I grew up in Portugal and um, at, at, yeah <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and at the time. Um, I just was not aware of what my career options were. Um, I just didn't know exactly what I could do. You know, in my head, I thought, oh, I could be, I could be a lawyer, uh, work in some sort of admin, be a doctor, and uh, work in the shop, and that's it. Those are <laughs> those are the jobs you can uh, you can uh, you can work. And um, yeah, so I wasn't I wasn't aware that a career in video games was even a possibility. Uh, it was just like. In the back of my head, it was just like this crazy dream that would that would never never really happen. Um, so, becoming becoming a designer, I'm a, I'm a graphic designer by uh, by trade. I I just thought that was a better option to try and and achieve my dreams of working in the creative um, environment and uh, an entertainment environment. And um, with Sega, what happened was that I was actually looking for a job at the time and I was going through quite a few job roles and a uh, job for a web designer role popped up for Sega. And I thought, oh, oh, I could apply for this. This is a thing I could, this is a (laughs) thing I could do. Um, You know, I looked through and I I thought, I'm sure this happens to so many people, but I was um I was looking at it and I was thinking they're never gonna get back to me. I'm never gonna. No way I'm gonna be able to work <laughs> at Sega. That's crazy. That's not gonna happen. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, after just you know just uh, looking at it and and thinking about it for so long and talking myself down for a whole day, I was like, you know what? No, I'm gonna I'm gonna apply. And um and I applied for the job thinking I would never hear back. Um and I didn't hear back for maybe a couple of months. Um, but then I, I did, I did hear back and, uh, and I went in for, for a few interviews and, and then I got, I got the role. So it was, that's why I usually call it a, a happy accident because, yeah. um, it was, even though, uh, people that know me as a kid, I used to, um, I used to be obsessed with video games. And when I say that, I say, um, I used to be obsessed with the history of video games. I used to know the history of consoles as a kid. Today, I don't know as much anymore. <laughs> but, <laughs> but back then, I used uh, I used to be able uh, to tell you what was the first console and what were first games that 
that were considered video games and Sega was such a big part of that because of um, my, you know, just my history as a gamer, having the Mega Drive and and being a big fan of Sega games as a whole. And um, I even I even remember in school, I used to write about video games. I wanted to talk about video games in history class. So it was a big <laughs> deal. So people, when people found out that I work at Sega today, they're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, that that seems like the type of thing you you do. Um, but yeah, it feels like you know all the dots just connected. Yeah. I was at the right place at the right time, and um, you know, hopefully, I like to think that preparation met opportunity, and um, mm-hmm. and everything unfolded from there. Awesome, that's great. That's great to know. Yeah. So, by the way, if if you're you were saying that you're a designer by trade, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And uh, apparently, you know, I know I do my research. And I mm. talked to your mom, uh, and she said, you make pretty pictures for the interwebs. <laughs> no, I didn't. That's something on your LinkedIn page. Yeah, uh, yeah that's, <laughs> that's true. Uh, my, my mom to this day, I don't think she fully understands what I do for a living. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, how would you uh, explain, because you use a lot of uh, different, um, you know, dis- uh, different descriptions for your uh, work right now. Uh, digital yeah. design, UI, UX, mm-hmm. design systems, motion, yeah. CRM. If you yeah. could sum that up into what's your typical work day right now? Well, Ooh. not maybe not really right now because we're in a different situation yeah. with the COVID yeah, yeah. thing. But usually what's your day like? What do you do? Oh, it's it's very tricky because basically in all the things that you just mentioned, all things I do on on a daily basis. So um, I work mm-hmm. in a very small team. There's only four of us. Um, if I'm going to describe myself, my official title is I'm a senior designer, um, but I do, I, I'm a jack of all trades. And because I work on such a small team, we do have to adapt to doing all sorts of different things. Um, in, in my particular case, I work on the publishing side of Sega. Uh, mm-hmm. So I do, um, you'll see a lot of the websites that we work on, a lot of the uh, CRM communications. So in, um, in this case, newsletters, um, mm-hmm. I, I will have my hands on, on quite, quite a few of those. It's like um, maybe one good example I could give, like the design for SonicTheHedgehog.com. That is my work. Uh, same with the Dawn of War website. Um, so these are all um, Sega titles that, that I've worked on that I've worked on uh, previously, and um, we also have a community newsletter that goes out uh, almost every month with just like the latest Sega news about all uh, all of the Sega titles, and that is something that um, I work on as well. Um, on a daily basis, it really it will really depend because the design is what everyone sees, and then there's the background work of everything. Design, it, yeah, design essentially is problem solving, and I'm very fortunate to work in a company that has so many brands on under its umbrella. So in the case of Sega, we have companies like Creative Assembly, Relic. Amplitude um, Sports Interactive, uh, Two Point uh, Studios, and they're all very different. They're all very different brands with mm-hmm. very specific identities. So a big part of my role is to do research. I have to do a lot of research. I have to look into other websites, what other industries are doing. What um, I don't like to use the word competitors, but what our competitors are doing. Marta streams regularly at twitch.tv slash thisismarta with three A's at the end. Back in September, we celebrated International Podcast Day with what was the second most popular episode of the season. 
I've invited over to the lounge James and Dan, aka the Sega Guys, hosts of the Sega Guys Retropod. This was a very fun interview, which allowed me to learn a lot about the very zen and meditative experience that is playing Sega Rally. Take a listen at how a difference in opinion spawned a friendship and a collaboration between the two guys. Because obviously we both had shared a common interest, which, you know, obviously games, but predominantly Sega games. So I'd see some of, I remember some of James's uh, posts, I'm sure he remembers some of these, so, you know, we, we had, you know, positive things to say to one another, but it was... It was kind of uh, on a. It was on a question as what, what's your favourite Sega console? Obviously, um, that we. I, I I said that mine was the Sega set, and I'd I'd seen I'd seen James before saying that he had a his favourite was Sega Rally, and that's when uh, that's when James uh, said, "Hmm, so yours is a, you, you, I, my my words were that the Saturn was where Sega were the most inventive, um, where they just kind of threw <laughs> caution to the wind." Um, and just, I mean, that, to me, it's just where they were just so Sega, you know, with all the yeah. benefits and the negatives that that, <laughs> that, that entails. Uh, and uh, and James disagreed, didn't you, mate? Yeah, well, <laughs> I remember that post very clearly because I, I don't know if it was a piece you'd written for. Was it was it Game Chopper you'd written it for? I think it was or one of your your kind of your sites that you write for, and you had said, you know, that the, the Saturn was was Sega at their most inventive. And I just remember kind of cheekily replying well that would make a great comparison piece because i knew yeah. you wrote um uh, and i'd be kind of toying with the idea of starting a blog up as well um about kind of sega games and kind of a dmg and just kind of reiterated that point and the initial idea wasn't so much as a podcast it was a website it was meant to just be like a blog site um and we just agreed we just said you know what i think this would make a far better podcast format um and, and to be fair i mean the the kind of the camaraderie and the the kind of relationship that that we've got you would think that we've been list, we've been kind of talking to each other for years um i mean i've recorded a fair amount of podcasts in the past and i've never never had a kind of a rapport with a co-host as quickly as, mm-hmm. as i have with dan and, and um as it's is it's really good i mean the listeners have bought into it um you know we were kind of out there trying to find a feet find their audience and i think a key part of what i think anyway what brings people back is that kind of banter and that kind of the way that we can we kind of bounce off each other um it's a it's a total fluke that, it, that it's worked the way it has <laughs> you know there's there's no guarantee you can throw two people together and, and they can talk about even if you've got a shared interest sometimes you can have a lot of maybe clashes of opinion and things but i mean maybe some folk might think that's a bit boring listening <laughs> They've agreed with each other <laughs> again, you know. It's like, <laughs> and the main every time me and Dan talk, it's like I'll say something, he'll go, "I totally agree, mate," and then he'll say something, I'm like, "Oh, bang on, mate," you know. It's like um, we, we just have a very similar outlook, um, despite the fact that Dan came to Sega as a, as a gamer far earlier than me. Um, we have very similar kind of outlooks um, on the company and the same kind of appreciations. Um, we've shed the same tears, Dan. I think is we have indeed. Yes. We have, mate. But but you, you, this whole thing started because you disagreed on something. It, it, it did, yeah. And that's the irony, isn't it? I've just prattled on about how much we agree, and the, the irony is that it was actually a disagreement. <laughs> oh. I think, yeah. So there, there was. I think there's only two disagreements. There was. There's that one, and uh, 
and uh, there was the the recent Mega Drive episodes where I said I was talking about Sonic Two, obviously, and I said people say, "Oh perfect, yeah, the perfect mm-hmm. game doesn't exist." And James chimed and went, "Yes, yes it does. It's Sega Rally." <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah. Do check out the Retropod. The guys have already released a couple of great episodes this year, so if you're in need of more Sega podcasts, please give the Sega guys a listen. The single most popular episode of the last season of the show was my interview with Melo from RetroAchievements.org. I had interviewed the creator of this project many moons ago, but this chat with Melo was a lot of fun and allowed us to learn more about this fantastic project that I highly recommend everyone should check out. Here is Mileo explaining what retro achievements are and how they work. We can say that retro achievements is a feature where you have some, let's say, tasks to accomplish inside the game. And the task is called an achievement. And once you do an achievement, you are rewarded for doing it. And while you were playing, you will see, in a, in a, you will see a, a badge popping on the screen informing you that you unlocked that achievement. And well, some some people can say it's a, just a silly thing, but this silly thing causes an injection of dopamine <laughs> in your brain and makes you <laughs> and makes you want to keep playing to unlock other achievements. <laughs> and also, uh, the the achievements you unlocked are are logged in your uh, account in the website, so you can keep track of the achievements you already have unlocked and the ones you have to to you you have you still have to unlock to get that sexy mastery badge <laughs> meaning that you <laughs> unlocked every achievement for that game mm-hmm. and well in, in order to play old games with this feature you must use specific emulators that we provide and yeah that's it and yeah the the so the, you you the, sorry yeah, please go, go on. So uh, you, okay. you're talking about uh, of, of, uh, of retro achievements as a feature, right? So it's available mm-hmm. on emulators like RetroArch. You just mentioned, like, mm-hmm. if you have a RetroPie, yeah, yeah. you can connect your retro achievements account with mm-hmm. your RetroPie as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the project started with, uh, as I said, the project started with some Windows only emulators, but fortunately, mm-hmm. currently, it's possible to play with achievements via a retro arch and, uh, and it's uh, there's a high chance that, that our listeners know retro arch but for those who don't know it's an awesome piece of software that can run on several platforms and devices such as windows linux android ios raspberry pi ps vita playstation 3 and so on and mm-hmm. it's an amazing piece of software and since we managed to integrate the achievement feature into RetroArch, it uh, it opened the it, it provi- uh, we are able to provide this feature for a huge um, user base, and that's why we at Retro Achievements Project we owe them the the RetroArch project a big gratitude. As a huge Shenmue fan, I'm always trying to squeeze in references to the games and invite some Shenmue-associated guests to the show. I finally got the chance to sit down with James and Matt from Shenmue Dojo last year. The guys were celebrating the website's 20th anniversary, 
and we talked about this amazing community and even side projects as Suka Pass in Shenmue World. Speaking of Suka Pass, here's James talking about it. If anyone's not aware, um, Shenmue originally came with a fourth disc, which was the, the passport disc, which was like full of unnecessary content, really. But as you play through the game, if you met characters and then put in the fourth disc and loaded your save file, you could um, connect to the, the internet, the Dreamcast internet back then, and um, their character profile would suddenly appear if you, you looked into it. And then that's the same. There was profiles for places. You know, that that's probably... <laughs> one of the crazy aspects of Shenmue is the the amount of lore and uh, backstory yeah. that every character's got. You know that Casey, but um, so so that passport disc. Obviously, the servers for that died a long time ago, and then when they released um, the Shenmue One and Two collection, uh, we were a little bit disappointed actually that they'd not tried to add the passport as well. I mean, obviously, I can understand why. Um, but um, we wanted to try and do something to bring that back alongside the release of that. So me and Switch worked on Sukapass, uh, which you can, if you're interested, you can go on sukapass.com and um, there's information on how to download the app. Uh, it's a, There's an extra step if you've got a, an Apple phone, but if you're an Android user, you can just go on Google Play and type in Sukapass and it's a free app. And um, we've tried to replicate the Shemu Passport as best as we can. There's still a lot that we want to add, but at the moment you've got the full character profiles, all 337 characters, I think, from Shemu 1. You can read the backstory of all them. Uh, all of the, the places in the game have all got backstories, like I say, uh, and that's probably my favourite feature of the app, the, the map section. Um, mm -hmm. There's music, the, the original playlist of the, the music that you get on the disc. Um video footage oh we've got the move scrolls as well so there's, there's even like backstory on each of rio's moves that he learns throughout the game mm -hmm. um so I've, I've been working with switch on that for a while and then he mentioned to me let let me just uh, interrupt you for a yeah. second yeah. to say i definitely recommend everyone to download sukapass because it's awesome <laughs> thank, you, thank you uh <laughs> definitely recommend it also gets the sega launch seal of approval uh and um, seal? <laughs> it, it, it's it's the same seal same but seal. for the sukapass this time <laughs> because you know I, I I was thinking about this the other day, and you could just if you have uh, Shenmue One and Two HD, or even if you're playing the the old games, you could, for example, just use the maps in this app as reference. For example, yeah, exactly. If you never played um, the game before, it's it's actually ideal because, uh, well, there's there's some crazy fans who've sent us some messages saying that they're they're using it alongside the game, and they're actually every time they speak to a character. They're actually going in the profiles on the app and saying that they've met that character because we added a button that you can you can say like you've met them in the game. So the the kind of using mm -hmm. the app like you would use it back in nineteen ninety nine where you'd meet a character, then you'd go on and read the profile, and you know <laughs> some people um, yeah. immerse themselves in the world a bit like that. So that's kind of uh, a nice nice thing to hear that people are using the app in those those kind of ways. That's cool. I'm a big fan of Sukapass. I have it on my phone and I regularly open the app and check out its content, even if I'm not playing the games. I highly recommend it. And I'm excited for the Shenmue World magazine to arrive at my doorstep soon, too. Well, we closed off the season with a man who was probably the most enthusiastic guest we've ever had on the show. 
radio and internet personality Tom Campbell. Tom came on the show to discuss his love for Sonic the Hedgehog and his upcoming, at the time, podcast celebrating 30 years of the Blue Blur. The episode served as both season finale and Winterfest 2020 special, and it was another hugely popular episode. Here's Tom talking about Sonic 2 on the Master System and what happens to Tails, and then we both go on a rant over the logic of Sonic boss fights. Sonic 2 on the Master System was, was in a on a completely different planet because it was a whole different arrangement of levels, a whole different storyline. And whilst Tails wasn't like a Tails wasn't in the he was in the game, but he wasn't a playable character. It was he was kidnapped, and that was the whole plot of Sonic 2 on the Master System. And I remember being traumatized, David. We talked about this uh, a little bit recently, if me and a friend of mine traumatized by the yes. Master System version of Sonic 2. Yes. Because if you don't collect all the Chaos Emeralds, yes. you know where I'm going, don't you? Yes. You've got this, David. If you don't collect all the Chaos Emeralds and you do the credit sequence, at the end of the credits, Sonic slows down, looks up, and and there is Tails made up of stars in the sky, which basically tells us that Tails is dead yes. and <laughs> Tails has passed. And, and it's, it's like, what? Why? Because I didn't collect some jewels. Like, Dr. Robotnik's killed Tails. Jeez, Master System, chill. <laughs> Come on now. What are you playing at? A very different beast of a game, but but I, I, love, I loved it on the Master System as well. It was a solid game. <laughs> Yeah, so Robotnik or Eggman on the Master System was a, you know, a, a real villain, a really evil person. Real villain, yeah. Really? And, and he was just, a, just a, clearly a monster. You barely saw him in the Master System version of Sonic 2 because he was just sending all these, these pretty crap minions to go and, and fight you in boss levels. But it, when, you know, we didn't see him because he was busy killing Tails, apparently. Which makes Come sense. On now. Very Which heavy. makes sense. Think about it. I, I was thinking about this the other day. What villain, what sort of, you know, like maniacal villain who has. All the money in the world to build robots and contraptions and machines and spaceships and stuff. Which villain would take some of his time to, in every different zone the hero goes to, just take like three or four minutes to just go there and try to stop the hero and then get defeated and move on <laughs> to the next level. That doesn't make a sen any sense. Doesn't we make had sense. some fun talking about uh, Dr. Robotnik on, the, on our Twitch. I did some Twitch streaming over the past, over the year, because this year's been a hellscape, David. <laughs> yes. And I've had some time on my hands. So I did a lot of streaming of old Sonic games. And the one thing that does make me laugh is, is when, you, when you take out of context the, uh, the, the Robotnik boss fights, as you say, as you rightly say, my good friend, the, the whole thing of like this guy who's got all this money and all this intelligence to build these machines that could destroy, lay waste to in entire lands and, and destroy enemies. What's his plan? First time he sees Sonic. Well, I've got this big round ball. I'm going to tie it to a <laughs> chain and tie that to my, to my, to my ship. And I'm just going to swing it around a bit. He won't be able to. Oh, he's beat me. Oh, okay. <laughs> the shock. Well done, Robotnik. Well done, mate. Nailed it. <laughs> and and if you're playing the Master System version, there isn't a ball at all. So it's just him, uh, yeah, you know, strolling about, around. floats around in his ship. I'm here. You can't beat me. Oh, no. Just watch me. Yes. 
does it make any sense? <laughs> I'm going to dip down a little bit. Oh, what? My plan? What was your plan? To float around a bit? Mate, come on. You're a super intelligent being. What are you playing at? <laughs> ah, the memories. That's it for a retrospective of the amazing fifth season of the Sega Lounge. There were many more moments to share and highlight, but as I said in the beginning, there's not enough time to mention everyone I had on the show last year. But consider this an invitation. Feel free to listen back to Season 5 of the Sega Lounge, which is available everywhere, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts from. For a hub that's easier to navigate, and for the full version of each episode's show notes, head over to our website at thesegalounge.com. I can't stress this enough, but the growth of this podcast in the last year still blows my mind, and I'm thankful to each and every one of you for supporting the show. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to The Sega Lounge on your favorite podcast service. And a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser also helps us out immensely. With that, it's time to say goodbye for the week. Next week, we'll continue looking back at 2020, but from a different perspective. Me and some friends of the show will share our favorite Sega games and moments from the year and what made us appreciate this community even more in 2020. As always, please stay safe and for our friends in Europe, stay warm. I hope to see you all next week. Bye bye The Sega Lounge, hosted by me, KC, and part of Radio Sega's network of live shows and podcasts. Theme song and incidental music by OSC. Find them at opusciencecollective.bandcamp.com. Got any suggestions? Drop me an email to podcast at thesegalounge.com. Follow us on Twitter at thesegalounge and like us at facebook.com slash thesegalounge. You can find previous episodes of the show by going to thesegalounge.com and wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. <laughs>